Chapter 16 of Pollyanna's Jewels. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Pollyanna's Jewels by Harriet Lummis Smith. Chapter 16 The Mystery Baby. It was perhaps with the hope of counteracting the depressing effect of Mrs. Richard's call that, on the occasion of Sadie's next visit, Pollyanna resolved on an impromptu tea. I have such lovely neighbors, she told Sadie. I want you to know them. You'll be back and forth so often the next few years that it will be nice for you to feel acquainted with everyone. Taking Sadie's silence for consent, Pollyanna went briskly issuing her invitations. Her method was informal. Catching sight of Mrs. McGill at her bedroom window, Pollyanna threw open her own window and, by gestures, indicated that she had something of importance to communicate. Mrs. McGill, instantly understanding, put out her head and Pollyanna called to her, "'Can't you come over this afternoon to meet a friend of mine?' "'Charmed! What time?' Oh, about three o'clock. Mrs. McGill smiled, nodded, and closed the window. And then Mrs. Hunt, coming into the backyard to hang some clothes on the line, received an invitation which she as promptly received. Pollyanna caught sight of Mrs. Warner as she passed the house on her way to market. The others were invited over the telephone, with the exception of Mrs. Richards. As it was impossible to get a response from her phone after repeated ringings, Pollyanna sent Junior over with a note, inviting her to drop in to have a cup of tea with Mrs. Carew and some of the neighbors, provided she reached home in time. While Pollyanna was telephoning, Sadie busied herself with one of those tiny garments into whose making goes so much of hope and tenderness. Absorbed in her own thoughts, she did not notice that Judy had come up beside her and was viewing her work with interest, not unmixed with suspicion. Sadie was recalled from the dream world to this by the question, What for are you making a baby dress? Sadie gave a little start, conquered an impulse to hide the telltale garment, and smiled into the puzzled face raised to hers. Like many conscientious people, Sadie considered children fair game. She replied gaily, I'm thinking of stealing your baby. Mother wouldn't let you. But she has you and Junior. It's not fair for her to have three children when I haven't any. Maybe, hesitated Judy, frowning as she struggled with the weighty problem. Maybe the fairies will steal you one. I'm tired of waiting for the fairies. I'm going to steal one for myself. Judy backed away, her face shadowed by resentment, and Sadie, with the all but universal inability to take a child's deepest emotions seriously, laughed and went on with her sewing. Shortly after three, Pollyanna's living room presented an unusually animated appearance. Pollyanna's neighbors had been as informal as she. Most of them had come without their hats, and practically all of them had brought their sewing. Now all were talking at the same time, the most convincing proof that a feminine assemblage is enjoying itself. 
The children were not in evidence, having been sent out of doors to play, Judy leaving most reluctantly. I want to stay and hear them talk about their husbands, she had whispered in her mother's ear. Nancy had the baby up in the nursery. But, though absent in body, the children still dominated the situation. It was not long before the conversation had turned to those problems of a special interest to mothers of families. Sounds like an unofficial meeting of the Mothers' Club, Mrs. McGill remarked to Sadie in a momentary lull. I'm out of it, for I haven't children. Have you? No, said Sadie, and blushed in a way which made every woman present regard her with kindly interest. And then Mrs. Redding, perhaps to divert attention from Sadie's flaming cheeks, exclaimed, I wish everyone here could have attended a lecture I heard in the city yesterday. Every mother should hear it. Can't you give us the gist of it? asked Pollyanna, all interest. Mrs. Redding did not seem to find this easy. Rather haltingly, she explained that it was not safe to interfere with children's doing as they pleased. If they still wished to do the forbidden thing, it became a suppressed desire and ended in becoming a complex. And it's very dangerous, explained Mrs. Redding, evidently glad to reach a conclusion. For, as near as I could make out, if a thing's a complex, you simply have to do it. A rather depressed pause followed this sweeping statement. I declare, cried Mrs. Wilkins at length, it's terrible how much a mother needs to know nowadays. Mrs. Warner expressed her agreement. A mother's sense of responsibility is perfectly crushing. That is, if she takes motherhood seriously. Sometimes when I look at my Jack, I wonder how I ever had the courage. Some women never seem to think of it that way, remarked a pretty little blonde, whose bobbed hair gave her such a juvenile aspect that the maturity of her sentiment was almost startling. Beyond seeing that their children have enough to eat and wear, they haven't any feeling of responsibility. It seems to me, said Mrs. Hamilton gravely, that a woman without a very strong sense of duty isn't fit to be a mother. There was a corroborative murmur, and then Pollyanna spoke. Don't you think, she suggested, that gladness is about as important? Gladness? repeated Mrs. Hamilton with an interrogative accent. Why, what do you mean? A woman might be very well posted on all the new theories of child training, explained Pollyanna, and she might have developed her sense of duty and her sense of responsibility enormously. But if she hadn't learned to get fun out of being a mother, I think she'd be a failure. There was a little stir in the room. But if one is worn out with work and anxiety, suggested Mrs. Wilkins querulously, how is one to be glad? Women of our class ought not to be worn out with work, except in some crisis like sickness. I consider that my first job, explained Pollyanna, is to be a happy mother. Then I try to be as good a housekeeper as possible, without sacrificing the more important things. 
I can assure you that Mrs. Pendleton lives up to her theories, said Mrs. McGill. I'm going to tell them about Christmas morning, my dear. Oh, yes, I am. And then, despite Pollyanna's protest, she told the story of the loss of Pollyanna's most cherished possession. Every other woman in the room under the same circumstances, declared Mrs. McGill, would have been in tears. And the first words Mrs. Pendleton said were, I'm glad. We all envy Mrs. Pendleton her sunny nature, said Mrs. Warner, glancing affectionately in the direction of her hostess. I'd give anything if I'd been born with a cheerful disposition. Now, I wonder if she was simply born that way, mused Mrs. McGill. Of course, I hope so, for that relieves me of all responsibility. But I believe Mrs. Pendleton lays it to a game she has played ever since she was a little girl. A game, replied Mrs. Hunt. That sounds interesting. I'm sure it wasn't bridge, laughed Mrs. Warner, to whom Pollyanna had outlined her strenuous week as Aunt Ruth's guest. You'd better tell them the story, Mrs. Pendleton, suggested Mrs. McGill, or if you're too modest, I'll do it, and though it won't be done as well. As a matter of fact, the story of the little crutches in the missionary barrel lost nothing in Mrs. McGill's telling. It was clear that everybody present was interested, even though inclined to regard the glad game as an ideal impossible of realization. I can see how it would interest a child, said Mrs. Hamilton, but, of course, as one grows older. Although she had left her sentence unfinished, her meaning was plain, and Pollyanna promptly took up the gauntlet in defense of her game. There's always something to be glad about in everything. I've never found an exception, and the glad game is an old game now, you know. And you still play it? Someone asked incredulously. Pollyanna smiled sweetly in the questioner's direction. I remember once telling Aunt Ruth that if I had no more hard things in my life than she did, I shouldn't know how to play the game myself. And that's the difficulty with me just now. There's so much happiness, I don't have to hunt for a reason to be glad. She gave a little start as she finished and turned quickly. Someone asked a question but it was evident that she did not hear it. She was plainly listening to a sound outside the room, and her expressive face showed an incredulity that deepened to amazement. The baby's waked up, hasn't she? remarked Sadie, glancing with a wonder at Pollyanna's absorbed face. Pollyanna turned toward her. It does sound as if it were in this house, doesn't it? she appealed. But it can't be. It's a much younger child than my baby. The wailing, which all now heard distinctly, became louder. The door of the nursery opened, and Nancy crossed the upper hall. They heard her speak soothingly. There, there, dearie. Does it want its mama? Bless its heart. Pollyanna ran to the foot of the stairs. What is it, Nancy? She cried, a curious tension in her voice. Nothing, Miss Pollyanna. The little deer has had its nap out. I'll bring it down. Almost as she finished, Nancy appeared at the head of the stairs, a baby in her arms. It was a child perhaps six months old, dressed for out of doors in white knitted garments, which contrasted strikingly with the red, angry little face. 
The baby was crying vociferously. Its eyes squeezed tightly shut. And as Nancy came smiling down the stairs, Pollyanna fell back a step and stood speechless, staring at the apparition. I believe it knows it's in a strange house, Miss Pollyanna. I guess it'll feel better if it gets a sight of its mama. She turned expectantly toward the group in the living room, and the silent women gave back her gaze blankly. Nancy, Pollyanna quavered, finding her voice at last. Where did that baby come from? Nancy closed her eyes tightly for a moment, and when they again opened, they were frightened. Ma'am? she faltered. I said, where did the baby come from? Why, Miss Pollyanna, some of the ladies brought it, didn't they? I, I didn't even know twas in the house till I heard it a-cryin'. It was a-lyin' on Judy's bed, kickin' and squirmin' and screamin' with its little face as red as red, red apple. Again, she turned appealingly to the group in the living room, as if imploring someone to claim her burden. As no one seemed disposed to assume the responsibility of the screaming infant, Nancy closed her eyes again and swayed slightly as if ready to fall. Pollyanna rushed to the rescue, snatched the baby from Nancy's limp arms, and held the small insurgent against her shoulder soothingly, till its cries changed to a tranquil cooing. The excited women gathered about, offering innumerable suggestions, but no one was able to identify the baby. I suppose the back door's unlocked, Pollyanna said, struggling to rally her wits sufficiently to formulate a theory. Why, yes, ma'am, the children are out playing. I wonder, mused Pollyanna distractedly, if the children could have had anything to do with this. Will you please call them, Nancy? Junior is over playing with Jack, said Mrs. Warner. I'll call him while Nancy brings Judy. Junior was the first to arrive, owing to the fact that Nancy, after starting on her errand, came back breathless to announce that there was a baby carriage in the backyard. It's run right close to the house, Miss Pollyanna, and it's got a little fur rug and a pillowcase all embroidery. If this ain't for all the world like the witch stories my old grandmother used to tell me. Mrs. Warner had purposely avoided giving Junior any explanation for his urgent summons home, and when he entered the house and saw his mother with a strange baby in her arms, he at once leaped to a not unnatural conclusion. Why, mother, he gasped ecstatically, is it, is it a girl or a boy? Junior, said Pollyanna, though his face had practically answered her question before it was put, do you know how this baby got here? Junior came closer, looking at her confidentially. Some folks say a queer bird brings him, he explained, a bird with awful long legs, but I don't believe it myself. It was clear that there was no information to be secured from Junior. And when Nancy appeared with Judy, the latter wearing an expression of cherubic innocence, it seemed preposterous to connect her with the mystery. But though she looked sharply at the woolly bundle in her mother's arms, she made no remark, and the omission struck Pollyanna as suspicious. Judy, dear... Do you know how that baby came here? 
I guess, piped Judy while they all stood breathless. I guess the fairies stealed it. Pollyanna recalled Jamie's fanciful talk of the week before and sighed as she continued her catechism. Put on your thinking cap and tell mother all about it. I guess, replied Judy in a still higher key, that the fairies stealed it for Aunt Sadie. In spite of the tension, a smothered laugh went the rounds, checked as Sadie uttered a shocked exclamation. Oh, Pollyanna, I wonder if I'm to blame for this. Why, what do you mean? She saw me at work on some baby things and asked me about them, and I, well, I told her I was thinking of stealing your baby. This is a nice baby, Aunt Sadie, suggested Judy, pointing to the wool-clad infant. You said you, you couldn't wait, so the fairies, they hurried up. Pollyanna was convinced that the culprit was before her. She handed the baby over to the nearest woman and took Judy's hand. Come upstairs with mother, Judy, she said. We're going to have a little talk. As Judy mounted the stairs, her voice floated back to the group below. Ain't Aunt Sadie glad the fairy stealed her such a nice baby? It took 20 minutes of questioning before Judy admitted that she herself was the fairy responsible for the theft of the baby. It is a question whether an imaginative child is always able to distinguish between its fancies and realities. During Pollyanna's cross-examination, there were times when Judy seemed fully to believe her first preposterous story. But at last, she acknowledged finding a baby carriage with a baby in it. And it didn't have any mother or any daddy or any Nancy or anybody, Judy explained dramatically. The fairies stealed it for Aunt Sadie. Who helped bring it here? Pollyanna asked. But apparently Judy had had no accomplice. Had it not been for indisputable evidence in the shape of the baby's presence, Pollyanna would have been inclined to think her story another imaginative flight. On finding the unattached carriage, she had serenely pushed it home, and apparently no one had been sufficiently impressed by the spectacle of a child, hardly more than a baby herself, in charge of an infant a few months old, to make any inquiries. Junior was not in sight when Judy reached home, and Nancy was in the nursery, so that Judy, unquestioned, carried the sleeping baby up the back stairs. Pollyanna shuddered as she listened and deposited her on her own bed. Pollyanna was sure at last that she had the correct story. Now, we will go right to the place where you found the baby carriage, she said. Perhaps the poor mother is feeling as bad this very minute as we would feel if our baby disappeared. Aunt Sadie, Judy began, and though she got no further, her mother understood. Aunt Sadie was only joking when she talked about stealing our baby. She wouldn't think of doing such a wicked thing. Now, Mother will put on her coat and hat, for we must hurry. Downstairs, Pollyanna's guests were waiting eagerly for her report, but when she gave it, they looked incredulous. It doesn't seem possible, declared Mrs. McGill, scrutinizing the small culprit unless she really did have assistance from the little people. 
Children are equal to a great many things we think impossible, said Pollyanna, taking the baby from Mrs. Hunt's arms. I hope to be back very soon and give you all that cup of tea, I promised. If I don't come, Nancy... Oh, nonsense, cried Mrs. McGill. Don't worry about our tea. But don't you think, my dear, that we had better telephone to the police station before you start? When those responsible for the baby find it has disappeared, they will notify the police immediately. Pollyanna approved the suggestion, and Mrs. McGill did the telephoning. But no case of kidnapping had been reported at the police station, though the official in charge took Pollyanna's address for future reference. The mystery baby had begun to cry again from hunger, Pollyanna feared, and when she had tucked him into his carriage, she started off briskly in the direction Judy indicated, Judy trotting at her side. It soon became painfully evident that, as a guide, Judy was a broken reed. After walking half a dozen blocks in an easterly direction, Pollyanna became suspicious. Did you go so far from home as this, dear? I can hardly believe it. A little girl who has been forbidden to cross the street alone. No, I didn't go so far, declared Judy, whether expressing an actual conviction or in order to lessen her culpability. Pollyanna did not know. For fear that it might be the latter, she walked on another three blocks and then turned to retrace her steps. Now, Judy, you must watch sharp and find the place where the baby carriage was when you found it. Don't know where it was, said Judy crossly. Now, think a minute, dear. What did you see near the baby carriage when you took it? Two cunning little birdies, said Judy, brightening, and they flew way off. After an hour of this, interrupted only by a telephone call to her home to ascertain if anything had been heard from the police station, Pollyanna decided to return home and wait for some move on the part of the child's mother. It seemed impossible that anybody should lose a baby of that age and do nothing. It was rather a relief when she reached home to find that her guests had all departed, with the exception of Mrs. McGill and Sadie. The mystery baby was in a violent temper, and Pollyanna decided to try the effects of a good meal. As she expected, the baby became amiable when the pangs of appetite were relieved. But Pollyanna looked worried. All three women were thinking the same thing, and finally it was Mrs. McGill who put it into words. It would be too much of a coincidence for Judy to stumble on a baby someone had abandoned, wouldn't it? Pollyanna agreed that it would be altogether too much of a coincidence, and Sadie backed her up with great emphasis, after which there seemed nothing to be said. They sat around in a brooding silence and jumped nervously whenever the telephone rang. But the first time it was only Mrs. Warner to ask if they had heard anything, and the second time it was Mrs. Wilkins with the same question. When Jimmy came home from the train, Junior met him halfway down the block. Got a new little brother, Daddy. Jimmy stopped with a jerk, then recovered himself. What's the joke, son? He can play with me when he gets some teeth, Junior prattled on, and the other baby can play with Judy. What do you think you're talking about, Junior? Mother doesn't know where the babies come from, Junior continued confidentially. Do you think that queer bird brings him, Daddy? Jimmy did not enlighten his small son.
He strode toward the house, Junior running to keep up with him, and the sight of Pollyanna with the two babies was proof that Junior had not been romancing altogether. And on learning that Pollyanna was not planning to adopt an infant, Jimmy became quite optimistic. He argued that the most absent-minded mother could hardly mislay a baby and forget all about it. While the quality of the little fellow's clothing convinced him that he did not come from a class of society where parents are likely to desert their children. But at midnight, Pollyanna and Jimmy were still waiting. Mrs. McGill had gone home and Sadie had returned to the city. All the children, including the mystery baby, were asleep. Pollyanna looked pale and worn. Jimmy was sleepy and a little cross. We might advertise, suggested Pollyanna, with less than her usual sprightliness. In the lost and found column, I suppose, jeered Jimmy. Owner can have possession by proving property and paying charges. It's just too awful, declared Pollyanna. A catch in her voice. To think that a darling little baby can disappear and nobody pay any attention. Where is his mother? What's that? Do you hear something? A car, roaring down the street, stopped with a jerk before the house. There was a sound of hurrying feet outside, and then the doorbell rang furiously. Jimmy and Pollyanna were on their feet at the first sound, and the door flew open before the distracted caller had time to ring again. It was a young man at the door, and a young woman was just ascending the steps, her appearance giving the impression that she was behind him only because she could not run as fast as he. The young man was incoherent. Is there, he stammered, is this the house? The young woman uttered a little wailing cry, and Jimmy answered the unspoken question at both. The baby's all right, he shouted, sleeping like a top, walk right in. Pollyanna had not lingered. At the first word, she had shot upstairs, and the father and mother were hardly in the house before she was back with the sleeping baby. And then there was a great deal of laughter, and some tears, and much incoherent chatter, and, last of all, the explanation. The baby's mother, it appeared, had gone to town that morning. When she and her husband returned, a little before midnight, they had found a hysterical cook. She explained that the nursemaid had gone out with the baby soon after one o'clock and had not returned. And then she had proceeded to tell them that the nurse was accustomed to giving the child a dose of soothing syrup, after which she would wheel the baby carriage into a little park opposite a small movie theater and leave it standing there while she attended the show with friends. The terrified parents had driven at once to the police station where they learned that a baby was temporarily housed in Elsinore Terrace, awaiting a claimant. And then Pollyanna told of the mysterious appearance of the baby in her upstairs bedroom, that Judy had wandered as far from home as the movie theater, and then had wheeled a baby cab over the distance without attracting attention, seemed almost beyond belief, but until a more plausible explanation was presented, this would have to serve. What I can't understand, said Pollyanna, who, in her vicarious happiness in this family reunion, had quite forgotten how tired she was, 
is why the nurse didn't come back to the house and tell what had happened when she found that the baby was gone. Either she thought that some of my friends had taken the baby away, in which case she'd have been found out, or else she thought the child had been kidnapped and was afraid to come back for fear she'd be held responsible. Yes, I see. Oh, cried Pollyanna from her heart. Aren't you glad you found her out before anything worse had happened? The girlish mother admitted her thankfulness. I didn't feel as if I could ever trust anybody again, she declared. Why, my cook, a good, reliable woman, has known all the time what that creature was doing and never told me a word till she was frightened into it. I feel as if I shouldn't dare leave the house again till the baby has grown up. When at last they could think of going to bed, which was not till considerably after one o'clock, Pollyanna was in a thoughtful mood. Doesn't it show how careful you need to be about what you say before an imaginative child? Jamie's and Sadie's jokes about stealing babies put poor little Judy up to this. But after all, she added with a change of tone, it's taught that nice, silly little Mrs. Fenton a lesson she needed. It looks as if Judy were an instrument of providence. Cheerful of you to take of kidnapping, suggested Jimmy. But he stooped over the bed where his little daughter lay and tenderly kissed the upturned cherub face. End of chapter 16